Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Cowden coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's program, New York opened a one-year window to allow adult abuse survivors to file lawsuits that had been barred because of the statute of limitations. But that window closed on Thanksgiving Day. We'll have an update on some of the 2,500 lawsuits that were filed. And we'll look at a recent statement by the International House of Prayer, Kansas City, about its investigation into founder Mike Bickle. Also, religious groups are no longer the most trusted charities in American life. That according to a recent report by the Better Business Bureau. We'll have details about that study later in the program as well. We begin today with news that Crandall University has fired its professor of religious studies for sexual misconduct. Evangelical theologian John Stackhouse has been terminated from his job at Crandall University after a six-month investigation into alleged inappropriate behavior towards female students on campus. Allegations arose at the Small Baptist College in New Brunswick, Canada, after an anonymous Instagram account called Do Better Crandall began sharing stories about sexual misconduct from then unnamed professors. Shortly thereafter, students and alumni signed an open letter to the university asking it to respond to those allegations. In April of 2023, Crandall hired the law firm Pink Larkin to conduct an independent investigation into the accusations, and Pink Larkin report focused largely on a single faculty member, later revealed to be Stackhouse in a press release from Crandall. The report found that Stackhouse created an unwelcoming environment for students. The investigator also looked into a series of email exchanges between Stackhouse and a female student that the investigator said amounted to a classic case of grooming. Pink Larkin presented its findings to Crandall's Board of Governors in mid-November, recommending that the school take severe disciplinary action against the professor. The board approved Stackhouse's termination on November 22nd. One of the ironies here is that Stackhouse is known for advocating to include women in church leadership, writing books about gender roles, and among other things, um, one of them, including Finally Feminist, a pragmatic Christian understanding of gender. He was also an early critic of the late evangelist Ravi Zacharias. Stackhouse's legal counsel issued a statement to Christianity Today saying that he categorically disagrees with the report from Pink Larkin. The report's summary also raised questions about sexual harassment complaints leveraged against Stackhouse when he worked at Regent College in Vancouver from 1998 to 2015. Our next story involves a New York law that has gotten national attention. That's right. Uh, New York's Adult Survivors Act was a law that opened a window for adult sexual abuse victims to file lawsuits in cases that were otherwise barred because of the statute of limitations. Uh, It expired, though, on Thanksgiving Day, November 23rd. However, before it expired, more than 2,500 lawsuits were filed, and at least one of those suits was uh, 
filed against a church, Hyde Park Baptist Church in Dutchess County, New York. The victim's lawsuit said that she was assaulted by a former pastor there, Jonathan Weaver, from the years 2000 until 2005. Weaver was later convicted for crimes related to his sexual misconduct by the state of South Carolina, but the New York lawsuit against the church alleges that Hyde Park Baptist Church engaged in a campaign of harassment and discrimination. The Adult Survivors Act is part of a movement to end the statute of limitations related to sex abuse cases. Another movement gaining momentum is the movement to end the use of non-disclosure agreements. That's right. The use of non-disclosure agreements has become more controversial in recent years, especially in light of the Me Too movement and the Church Too movements that brought to light sexual abuse and the use of NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, to silence victims. According to the National Association of, of Evangelicals, 93% of evangelical leaders believe that NDAs should be waived when a leader faces credible allegations of abuse. But one of the problems is that the definition of NDAs can be amorphous and unclear. Attorney Boz Chavigian told Ministry Watch reporter Kim Roberts that it might refer to a confidentiality provision in a settlement agreement in which both parties agree not to disclose the payment amount. Or it might refer to a provision as a condition for employment that an employee not reveal trade secrets and other sensitive company information. Now, these types of non-disclosure agreements are generally accepted and, you know, more or less non-controversial. However, non-disclosure agreements that are controversial are those that are agreements between an employee and an employer to keep silent about the very acts that gave rise to a claim against the employer in the first place, at least according to Bostovigian. He said that requiring them at the time of employment has been a growing trend. And last December, President Joe Biden signed the Speak Out Act into law. He intended that for this law to limit the judicial enforceability of pre-dispute non-disclosure and non-disparagement contract clauses relating to disputes involving sexual assault and sexual harassment. And Boshevigian said that while that law was a good first step, that he doesn't think that it really offers much protection. It doesn't eliminate non-disclosure agreements, for example, and in fact, it just makes non-disclosure agreements agreed to before the dispute arises unenforceable. So a non-disclosure agreement signed when a person begins employment would not be enforceable. Well, once again, according to Bashevigian, that's not clear. Questions about when the dispute arises, which is the language in the act, are not fully settled. Just because the agreements are unenforceable, that doesn't mean that they're completely prohibited. Bashevigian wouldn't be surprised, for example, to learn that churches and Christian ministries are still using them, possibly as an intimidation tactic. He said if an employee doesn't know that a non-disclosure agreement is unenforceable, then the power of that agreement might still be in place. Now, by the way, uh, according to a Ministry Watch quarterly survey of Christian ministry executives, 27% of ministries in the Ministry Watch 1000 data, 
do use NDAs as part of a severance situation or in the case of a settlement. Warren, we need to take a break. When we return, the International House of Prayer defends its decision to hire a law firm to conduct its investigation into founder Mike Bickle, but also intends to work with third-party groups. I'm Natasha Cowden, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll have that story and much more after this short break. Hey everybody, Warren Smith here, interrupting the podcast just to let you know that we are coming into our year-end giving season. Uh, Ministry Watch has a a big goal this year uh, of more than $110,000 that we need to raise uh, between now and December 31st to stay on budget for the year. If you like what you see on the Ministry Watch website or here in this Ministry Watch podcast, I hope that you will prayerfully consider giving to us uh, during this year-end giving season. And whether you give to Ministry Watch or not, I sure do hope that you will use the Ministry Watch 1000 database uh, to help you make your year-end giving decisions. Whatever you do, whether you give to us, your church, or to some Christian ministry, we hope you will give generously. We hope you will give wisely. And it's my prayer that Ministry Watch can help you in this stewardship journey. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Cowden, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Well, our next story is an update on the situation unfolding at the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. Serious allegations, including sexual immorality, uh, were initially raised against Mike Bickle back in October by three former leaders at IHOPKC, as it's sometimes called. Those leaders are Dwayne Roberts, Brian Kilm, and Wes Martin. Bickle was asked and agreed to step away from ministry while the leadership team assessed the situation. Later, he was removed from leadership altogether for an indefinite time up to and including until we complete a thorough examination of the allegations and inquiry of the circumstances. IHOP KC hired a law firm to conduct the original investigation, but that decision was met with criticism. That's right. So now, in addition to using that law firm to conduct the investigation, they have also hired another law firm uh, to look at the findings that the first one produced. Uh, It also promised to provide more frequent updates about the investigation. By the way, IHOPKC was founded in 1999 by Mike Bickle after he had broken away from the Vineyard Church movement following a conflict there with the leaders of Vineyard. Uh, It operates a prayer room 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bickle's theology emphasizes fasting, prophetic experiences, and in times studies, and it has been associated with the new apostolic reformation. Orrin, let's pivot in our conversation and mention a couple of stories this week related to Christian education. What's up first? Well, a strange twist in a story uh, coming out of Oklahoma. Four Christian leaders and education advocates are seeking the Oklahoma Supreme Court's permission to join a lawsuit that was filed by the state's attorney general that aims to prevent the opening of an online Catholic charter school. 
the Oklahoma faith leaders from, I should add, liberal denominations are represented by groups not normally known for representing faith leaders. Uh, Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, the American Civil Liberties Union, the Education Law Center, and the Freedom From Religion Foundation. On the other side of this lawsuit is the Alliance Defending Freedom, which in this case is representing the government, is representing the Board of Education. So again, this is kind of a, a fruit basket turnover on the normal alliances that you might see. The case is considered significant because it could open the door to religious charter schools being funded by public dollars, not just in Oklahoma, but around the country. And what's the other story related to education? Well, you may have heard that college athletes can now be compensated for their name, image, and likeness. These so-called NIL deals allow athletes to make money. Uh, they can get paid for product endorsements. They can make personal appearances and otherwise cash in on their celebrity status. These name, image, and likeness deals uh, are pretty popular around the country now. They've grown quickly and they're finding their way into Christian colleges. Most of the largest private Christian colleges in the country now have some sort of an NIL collective. How do the collectives work? Well, the collectives, sometimes called exchanges, serve as official partners with the school. Uh, the organizations usually raise funds from fans or businesses or boosters. Then, with coordination from the collective, student-athletes will sign agreements with the contributors to use their name, image, and likeness on any range of activities. It might be social media posts, brand endorsements, to maybe giving speeches or appearing at fundraising events to sign autographs and merchandise. In the case of the nonprofit collectives, players might also be used to promote a charity. And I understand that six-figure deals are common in the NIL industry as brands want to take advantage of players' significant fan following. The highest-ranked athletes, in fact, are not getting just six-figure deals, but in some cases, seven-figure deals in the millions of dollars. The top deal that we've seen so far has been for 5.9 million dollars. Uh, Open Doors, which is an NIL deals marketplace, projects that this year, 2023, uh, the marketplace will, in total, amount to 1.17 billion dollars. So what Christian schools are getting in on the act? Well, quite a number of them are. Shannon Cuthrell, one of our reporters, kind of took a deep dive into this, and she found that Texas Christian University, for example, has what it calls its Flying T Club, which is a student-athlete ambassador program where they can earn compensation by using their name, image, and likeness to support nonprofit partners. The organization was granted a 501c3 tax exempt status in 2022, uh, and it indicated then that it had raised about $150,000, but that was the year it was formed. More recently, a local news article from September of 2022 says that it has raised over $3 million. And at Baylor University, an organization called GXG has negotiated 258 deals with Baylor athletes. Now, they average um, seven to $8,000 
per deal, but there's 207 athletes involved in the program, and some of them will make a lot more than that. Other colleges, though, include Grand Canyon University and Liberty University. Those are the two largest Christian colleges in the country. And High Point University here in North Carolina is led by a very entrepreneurial president named Nito Cobain, and they all have collectives that pay athletes. And I should add that these are just a few of many. We haven't uh, nearly covered the waterfront here, but if you want to read more about this really fascinating uh, development, go to Shannon Cuthbert's story. It's a really good one on the Ministry Watch website. Or in our next story is the latest in a series of stories on what we have been calling the new paradigm in missionary efforts. First, what is this new paradigm? Well, of course, uh, most Christians know the Great Commission, which says that we're to go into all the world and to make disciples. That biblical command, of course, is still in effect today. We should go into all the world. But Christians have been going for 2,000 years, and there are now many millions of faithful Christians in virtually every part of the world. So some missiologists, those who study missions, suggest that maybe we should spend more time and money empowering the believers that are already there. That's called the new paradigm in missions. And we profiled an organization this week that's doing just that. The organization is called Big Life International, and it trains indigenous leaders in 162 countries. And it uses an approach uh, of training indigenous people rather than sending folks. uh, And that's caused it to grow fairly dramatically. In fact, in 2017, the organization took in just $3 million in revenue. But last year, it took in more than $14 million. And when I see growth like that, I want to take a closer look. So we asked our reporter, Kim Roberts, to dig in and see what she could see. And what did she discover? Well, less than 2% of missions dollars are used to reach the least evangelized people in the world. In fact, billions of dollars from the U.S. and European nations go to support American missionaries and the infrastructure and fundraising capabilities that support those missionaries and their sponsoring organizations. But Big Life is committed to, again, empowering indigenous people who are already living there. They are native speakers of the language, and of course, they don't get homesick because this is their home. And for example, in India, Big Life provides a $100 per month stipend to indigenous staff members there. In Pakistan, that number is closer to $300 a month. Now, compare that to the $125,000 a year that it typically takes to put a missionary from the United States in the field in places like India and Pakistan. This model has allowed Big Life to support about 1,200 missionaries on its $14 million budget. And use that same amount of money would probably, under the traditional method, support only about 100 or maybe 120 missionaries in the field. And as is often the case, we have a lot more than I'm able to talk about here, Natasha, about both the new paradigm and what Big Life is accomplishing. So I recommend you go to ministrywatch.com and check out Kim Roberts' story. It's right on the front page. Warren, we're going to take another break when we return our lightning round of ministry news of the week. I'm Natasha Cowden with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment.
Hey everybody, Warren Smith here, interrupting the podcast just to let you know that we are coming into our year-end giving season. Uh, Ministry Watch has a a big goal this year uh, of more than $110,000 that we need to raise uh, between now and December 31st to stay on budget for the year. If you like what you see on the Ministry Watch website or here in this Ministry Watch podcast, I hope that you will prayerfully consider giving to us uh, during this year-end giving season. And whether you give to Ministry Watch or not, I sure do hope that you will use the Ministry Watch 1000 database Uh, to help you make your year-end giving decisions. Whatever you do, whether you give to us, your church, or to some Christian ministry, we hope you will give generously. We hope you will give wisely. And it's my prayer that Ministry Watch can help you in this stewardship journey. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Cowden with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, we like to use this last segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. What's up first? On September 21, 1968, that's 55 years ago, so hardly current news, but stick with me, I'm getting to a point here. A group of pastors and preachers gathered around a small multi-lith 1250 printer in the Hemphill Baptist Temple's former church property in Fort Worth, Texas, and asked for God's blessing and direction to print his word. Now, fast forward 55 years to today, we're celebrating the 55th anniversary of this ministry, and they've announced that they have printed 55 million Bibles in 55 languages in 125 countries as part of the birthday celebration, partnering with local churches in those countries, by the way. That sounds great. How do we know where these Bibles uh, are and that they're not just sitting in a warehouse somewhere? Well, that's a really good question. And, you know, that's a question, in fact, that we've asked a lot of Bible translation and distribution organizations uh, over the last few years. So Ministry Watch contacted the group to ask if they, in fact, have processes in place to ensure that those Bibles just don't remain in some container or in a warehouse instead of going to the individuals in need. And what we got was a response from Robert Lemon Jr., who is uh, one of the co-founders and leaders of the movement, and he re- his reply was pretty short and direct. You bet we have processes. It would be total lunacy for us not to. He then recounted a fairly elaborate set of procedures, which I won't share completely here, uh, but it's a fascinating story of how a single church and then a small number of cooperating churches gathered around it have done a massive work for the gospel. It's just the kind of story that I love to uh, publish here at Ministry Watch. I recommend that you read Jessica Eteralde's story. You can find it at the Ministry Watch website. Warren, the Better Business Bureau released a study finding that for the first time in the history of the survey, religious organizations are not the most trusted institutions in America. 
Yeah, you're referring to the Donor Trust Report 2023. It's released annually by the Better Business Bureau's Wise Giving Alliance. And I want to be clear, they haven't been doing this survey for decades, but it has gone back to 2017. And uh, religious institutions fell to third place in this year's survey. It's the first time it wasn't in the top spot. Veterans organizations and not-for-profit hospitals now rank more highly as the the most trusted charities for American donors. Religious groups are still the most highly trusted charities among mature and baby boomer uh, generations. In all, though, 34.8% of matures, that's age 76 to 93, ranked religious organizations as their most highly trusted charity. Only 18% of Gen Z, that's ages 18 to 24, uh, would rank religious organizations as their most trusted charity. Gen Z is more likely to trust social service charities, animal welfare groups, and international relief organizations. And who's in our ministry spotlight this week? Well, it's a ministry that I'm guessing that a lot of our listeners know about. It's called Choice Books of Northern Virginia. They began in 1991 to provide wholesome and biblical reading material to the general public by placing displays of books in retail outlets. And when I say that a lot of our listeners probably know this ministry, they may not— They know, though, that they are, in fact, a Christian ministry. You've probably seen their displays in airports and Walmart stores and thousands of other locations around the country. In fact, they have more than 8,000 locations nationwide. But as I said, a lot of people don't know it's a Christian ministry and, in fact, gets pretty high marks from Ministry Watch for financial efficiency. In its most recent year, Choice Books did nearly $19 million in revenue. Well, Warren, unless our listeners have been living on a desert island for the last week, they know about Giving Tuesday. Can you give us an update on what happened this year? Yeah, according to Philanthropy Journal, nonprofits took in about $3.1 billion on Giving Tuesday, which is almost exactly what they took in uh, the same day last year. The difference was about $20 million. However, the number of donors was down about 10%. Uh, this year, 34 million people uh, made donations as opposed to more than 37 million last year. Now, by the way, that's consistent with statistics that we've been reporting on here at Ministry Watch for the last year or two. The amount of giving is not going down, at least not yet, but the number of people making gifts is going down. Fewer people are giving more, and more people are giving nothing at all. And I've got to say, in the long run, these are not healthy trends. Warren, do you have any final thoughts before we go? Well, I should tell our donors that we here at Ministry Watch did meet our Giving Tuesday goal, and we're really grateful for that. In fact, we exceeded our November fundraising goal by about 15%, which I am both grateful to God and to our listeners for, and I've got to confess a little bit of relief as well. Um, But as I've said before, we're in the midst of the most critical time of the year for Christian ministries, including Ministry Watch, when it comes to fundraising. Uh, For example, here at Ministry Watch, we need to raise about a quarter of our budget, about $115,000 during the months of November and December. Now, because we did well on Giving Tuesday and in November, we raised about $50,000 in total. 
That means we have to raise, and I put only in quotation marks, $65,000 during December. And of course, Ministry Watch is not alone. Some ministries raise much more than we do. They raise as much as 40% of their annual budgets during the last two months of the year. Now, if you'd like to help us reach our year-end goal, just go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page. But whether you give to us or not, we hope that you will use Ministry Watch to help you make your own giving decisions wherever you give. Uh, And you can use the Ministry Watch 1000 database to compare ministries. Whatever you do, we hope that you will give both wisely and generously during this year-end season. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Jeff McIntosh. We get database and other technical support from Stephen DeBerry, Rod Pitzer, and Casey Sedith. Writers who contributed to today's program include Brittany Smith, Kim Roberts, Fiona Andre, Shannon Cuthrill, Jessica Eldorade, and Rod Pitzer. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.